Hey guys, welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the US. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepon Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Bravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. We are really excited to share today's episode with you as we talk with Dr. Aparna Patel, who is a cornea, cataract, and refractive surgeon practicing in Kentucky. After graduating med school at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, she completed an internship and residency at the William Beaumont Hospital in Michigan. She didn't stop there though, as she also completed her fellowship in corneal and refractive surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. When she's not being an amazing, talented doctor, she's making us laugh on her Instagram page with her relatable IG reels as well. So we were really looking forward to discussing all types of refractive surgeries with Dr. Patel, as we all know, optometrists and ophthalmologists often co-manage these surgical patients. So get ready to learn a lot of information in this episode. Dr. Patel... Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. We're really excited to dive into refractive surgery with you. Um, So for any of our listeners who don't know who you are yet, would you mind letting us know a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So um, like you said, my name is Dr. Aparna Patel. Um, I am currently practicing in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as Northern Kentucky, which is closer to Cincinnati. Um, So my practice is in Louisville, but we do have several satellites and my main satellite is out of Florence, Kentucky, which is um, Northern Kentucky. Um, I grew up, actually I was born in Canada and I grew up, yeah, I grew up in Michigan. So I went to undergrad at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I studied movement science and kinesiology. And then I went on directly to medical school at the University of Cincinnati. And that is where I really discovered my love of ophthalmology I matched into ophthalmology residency at William Beaumont Hospital, um, Oakland University School of Medicine, and that's in Detroit, Michigan. I was there for four years, and then I did a cornea and external disease and refractive surgery fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic for one year uh, following that. And then I ended up here in Kentucky uh, with Bennett and Blue Eye Centers. What made you move to Kentucky? Like, What was so attractive about the job, or was it the city? That you wanted That's a to really good question. So when I was in medical school in Cincinnati, I kind of hated it. And I think it's because it was medical school and it was really hard and it was just yeah. not very fun. And um, so I never saw myself coming back to this area at all. And my original plan was to go back to Michigan and I interviewed for a few jobs there and I just didn't feel like I didn't feel any connection there. I didn't feel like it was a right fit for me. And so I saw this opening and the opening was actually listed for Cincinnati because my office is close to Cincinnati. So I interviewed with this practice and um, I just fell in love with the people and the staff. Basically, it was just a perfect fit for me. I felt like I was joining me. It was really important to me because, you know, when you work full time, you're at work a good amount of time. So for me, I was like, I want to be somewhere where I feel like I'm part of a family. I feel like We all kind of take care of each other. We all help each other out. And it's a great place surgically. Like I have, I have so much surgical volume and I pretty much walked into that volume and I've grown it since, 
but it wasn't like I was starting from zero and having to build that up all by myself. And as a new, you know, surgeon and new ophthalmologist, you know, that's a little bit nerve wracking as, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose my skills and my job. I want to get going right away. And the first year in this practice, I learned so much because I was just operating all the time. So it was a really good Mm -hmm. opportunity and a really good fit for me. And it's worked out really well. So that's how I ended up here. Yeah. I actually saw that, um, on one of your Instagram stories too, like you had like 30 patients of 30, like cataract surgeries in a day and they keep you busy. Like that's good. They keep me busy and I love every minute of it. So Mm -hmm. it's great. It was like the complete opposite for a lot of new grads recently, because, you know, luckily we graduated in 2019. Um, so I think our first year of work was pretty good. But then, you know, with Mm -hmm. the pandemic in 2020, I feel like not a lot of, a lot of students were so nervous to graduate because they're like, if we're not seeing any patients, you do get worried after school that you're going to lose a lot of your skills, Um, even though you never will, because you practice them a lot. (laughs) You always have that worry, like, oh, am I going to forget? You know, I I completely understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're excited yeah. to dive into, you know, refractive surgery. You know, you do a lot of different kinds of surgeries. You do corneal, cataract, and refractive. Um, right. But we really want to learn a lot of your knowledge on refractive surgeries today. So we'll let Alex take it away. So what are the refractive surgeries that you perform? And what are the main differences between PRK, LASIK, and SMILE? So there are four types of refractive procedures. They are LASIK, PRK, SMILE, and implantable columnar lens, also known as ICL. So I primarily do LASIK and PRK. I do not do SMILE yet. The plan is to dive into SMILE shortly. And my colleague does the ICL surgeries in my practice. So um, the difference is, is LASIK involves two lasers. The first laser is a femtosecond laser, and that laser creates a flap on the top of the cornea. The patient then has the surgeon lift up the flap, and the second laser is an eczema laser, and that laser does the treatment of the prescription onto the corneal stroma. The surgeon then lays the flap back down, smooths it out, and that's the procedure. That's LASIK. PRK is a little bit different. PRK, there is only one laser that we use, and that is the eczema laser. So the surgeon removes the epithelium on the cornea, and then the eczema laser ablates onto um, Bowman's and stroma. And that's how the um, that procedure is done. At the end, the surgeon puts a, a contact lens on top, mainly for mm-hmm. healing and comfort purposes. That is kept in for about one week, and then that is removed at the one-week post-op visit. Now, the difference with those two, since those are the most common procedures. LASIK, the day of surgery, the patient may have a little bit of stinging, burning, tearing, discomfort, vision's a little bit blurry that day, but by the next day, their vision is pretty good. And as long as they're lubricating their eyes, um, pain is pretty much minimal, if any, by the next day. With PRK, because the epithelium is removed, that epithelium has to grow back. So essentially, PRK, you're creating a large scratch or corneal abrasion on the, on the surface of the cornea. And that is very painful. So I tell all my patients, the first five to six days, your pain is going to be all over the place. It might feel great 
a couple of days and then the next day you might feel terrible and it's just going to fluctuate like crazy. Yeah. The vision also fluctuates during that first week. So the first week I tell people it's like a crapshoot. You never really know what you're going to get. Don't worry about it. That's normal. Okay. With PRK, the visual outcome is just as good with as with LASIK. And some studies have actually shown that's a little bit better, um, but it takes longer to get there. So it's not as, um, you know, convenient for the patients uh, in terms of having to go back to work because the vision does sometimes take up to a month, maybe even longer to stabilize afterwards. Mm -hmm. Now, I myself have had, have had PRK and it wasn't the most comfortable procedure, but I would do it again in a heartbeat because my vision is amazing. So um, I still recommend both of those procedures. Um, the difference in terms of which one I do just depends on the patient, mm -hmm. their occupation, and whether they're a candidate for LASIK or not. And if they're not, they may actually be a candidate for PRK. So it doesn't completely eliminate them from getting refractive surgery. They just may not be able to get LASIK. Mm -hmm. um, SMILE, as kind of a hybrid between both of them, if you will. SMILE basically creates a lenticule with the femtosecond laser. So the first laser um, that we use in LASIK. And then the surgeon dissects that lenticule out. And so there's no flap, which is good in the sense that it can benefit people who have uh, say dry eye or who are afraid of like a flap dislocation. Um, but the recovery, because you know we're not making a scratch on the cornea, the recovery is similar in the sense that you're not feeling a lot of pain afterwards. Your vision takes a little bit longer than LASIK to perk up, but it doesn't take quite as long as PRK. Mm -hmm. So there's disadvantages and advantages. Um, not all surgeons perform SMILE. So that's another disadvantage in the sense that your refractive surgeon might not pro uh, perform it, but it is a little bit of a learning curve for the surgeon to learn how to do SMILE because it's a newer procedure. And then lastly, ICL, that is an intraocular surgery um, where we actually put an implantable lens on top of the crystalline lens in the patient's eye. And ICL is more, is really for people who are, you know, minus 10 and higher, really. I mean, people who would not qualify for LASIK or PRK or SMILE, um, they either have really thin corneas or much too high of a prescription uh, where the other ones would not work for them. Um, and there's also with ICL, you know, there's limitations. So you have to have um, an anterior chamber depth of at least three millimeters and you can't have someone who has a narrow angle have that done either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually a really thorough explanation, which I love because I just learned about smile, maybe like three months ago. Uh -huh. And, and I already felt like, Oh God, I just left school and now I have to learn another, <laughs> another exactly. procedure. <laughs> um, because as you know, uh, as optometrists, you know, we, of course we're not performing the procedures and most of us are not even doing the initial surgical consultations. Right. So we just work in private practice and optical or corporate settings where our patients want to know, Oh, I, I, you know, they all say, I want LASIK. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of, we need to understand what each procedure is to sort of prepare them for what they're, what are they even going for in their consultation? So you did a great summary of all of them, but I kind of wanted to just clarify then maybe mm -hmm. for all of us optometrists, sure. is there any particular criteria in a patient where we can even recommend that they lean more towards one type of procedure as we're making that referral. So I, you know, you mentioned ICL, are there other certain refractive, you know, conditions? 
is there a time when maybe PRK would be best that we would know of, you know, Mm -hmm. before the consultation begins? That's a good question. Mm. In most cases, it's going to be a little difficult to discern that without doing, you know, a full topography, full manifest, full cycloplegic refraction, all that stuff. But a couple things that you can look for, um, if they have ABMD or any anterior dystrophy, I like to recommend PRK because we're going to treat that at the same time. So Mm -hmm. those patients, I like to do PRK on those patients because also when you have irregular epithelium on the cornea and you create a flap, that epithelium, you have a propensity of getting like epithelial ingrowth and all the things that can happen with a flap and irregular epithelium. Now it's not a super high risk. We still do LASIK in those patients, but I prefer PRK in those Mm -hmm. patients. So if you do see someone who has a fair amount of um, anterior membrane dystrophy, that might be a good one to say, hey, maybe PRK would be a good choice for you. Um, The other things are corneal scars. So if the patient has a very superficial corneal scar that's like subepithelial, that's fine for LASIK. But if they have a deep corneal scar, that femtosecond laser is going to have a hard time creating a flap through that. So someone with a deep like stromal scar, I would recommend PRK. I wouldn't necessarily say they're not a candidate. I would just say PRK would be the best way to go. And we would determine if they are a good candidate or not at their evaluation. Mm-hmm. But that's more of an, um, a patient I would uh, suggest PRK for instead. Um, I'm trying to think of any other things that you guys would would see, but I think those are the main ones. Um, yeah. If you have a patient who's like a minus 12, I mean, you may say, hey, you might not be a LASIK candidate, but you may be a PRK or an ICL candidate. Um, I typically don't do PRK above minus 10, but if that patient has a thick enough cornea and they're not really young and they have, you know, all the other metrics are good, that it's a possibility. So during the evaluation is when we would find that out, but those are the kind of things that you guys can look for in your office to see, oh, maybe you could have it or maybe not. Mm-hmm. Does that also apply with just astigmatism? Cause I have a lot of patients who will be Plano and then minus four, you know, with astigmatism. So are those like, what number would that be a good cutoff to recommend ICL versus, you know, that's a good question. Yeah. So astigmatism is actually just fine of an indication for LASIK or PRK. Um, ICL will treat one to four diopters of astigmatism at the spectacle Mm -hmm. plane. Um, But if someone is Plano minus four, I wouldn't even consider ICL. I would go with either LASIK or PRK. Again, given that the rest of their corneal exam, their topography, mm-hmm. everything else is stable. Um, and those are some of my happiest patients, the one, the ones that just have so much astigmatism and then all of a sudden they don't and they're just amazed at how yeah. you know we can get rid of that for them. So yes, that's another good indication for even LASIK and PRK. Mm-hmm. Is there a type of refractive surgery that is better to recommend for dry eye patients that have minimal to moderate symptoms? So there's literature that says that smile is better for patients with dry eye because, you know, we're not cutting the corneal nerves and we're not creating a flap. Also in the past, PRK was a better option for those patients. For me, I would probably go with PRK. However, most mild to moderate dry eye, in my opinion, because I'm a corneal specialist, most of that is due to eyelid hygiene. And so if you can treat the eyelid high, treat the patient's eyelids and get their hygiene better, 
most of that will go away. And if they can maintain that, you're golden. I mean, you're good. Mm -hmm. You're fine with LASIK. You're fine with PRK. And so um, if someone comes in, they have mild dry eye and they're motivated to have LASIK. What I do anyways is I go ahead and I aggressively treat that dry eye with very conservative measures. So I'm not adding more chemicals onto the cornea. I'm not adding steroids. I'm not adding more drops. I'm adding preservative free artificial tears. I'm using lid scrubs. I'm having them use a brooder mask. I'm having them use hypochloric acid spray, you know, all that stuff to really maximize their eyelid hygiene to treat the dry eye. Mm -hmm. And then I see them back. And if that dry eye is gone, they can have LASIK just knowing that, Hey, you may have to maintain your eyelid hygiene, which everyone should be doing that anyways, obviously mm -hmm. in my opinion, but, yeah. um, <laughs> Now, most patients who get refractive surgery are younger and younger patients tend not to have as bad of dry eye um, versus older patients. So, you know, if they are able to treat their dry eye and it looks good, you know, clinically and they feel good clinic or they feel good symptomatically, then I think they can still have LASIK um, if they're motivated to continue that treatment. Otherwise, I would mm -hmm. say PRK would probably be my next my next go-to. Okay, yeah. Just out of curiosity, um, what dry eye testing do you think most ophthalmologists are doing when they do a consult for refractive surgery? Honestly, I what I do, I just look at their eyes because you can tell a lot. I look at their tear breakup time Mm -hmm. um, because that'll tell me the health of their meibomian glands. And if they're clogged, if they have meibomitis, I'll look at their eyelid margin to see if they have scurf, if they have telangiectasias on their eyelid margin. Um, and then I look at their cornea. Do they have um, punctate epithelial erosions mm -hmm. or SPK? When they blink, you know, is the tear film nice and regular? Is there a lot of mucus in the tear film? Is there a lot of mascara and makeup in the tear film? A lot of debris in the tear film? So I honestly clinically just look at that and mm -hmm. then I ask them their symptoms. Now, of course, you know, we have Shermer's testing and all that stuff, but we don't even really do that at our refractive evaluations because it's just as easy to just look at the patient and say, oh yeah, we need to get this better before we move forward. Yeah. We want to take a quick second and thank our sponsor for this episode, which is Cooper Vision. Did you know that more than 40% of Americans have myopia? The number is increasing at an alarming rate, especially among school-aged children. And it hasn't helped that many have been spending more time indoors or in front of screens during the ongoing pandemic. So fortunately... Us optometrists have the opportunity as eye care professionals to help slow myopia progression. And when it comes to myopia control in children who are 8 to 12 years of age at the initiation of treatment, MySight One Day is the one for myopia control. It may be the one for your age-appropriate patients as well. And we have good news. Certification is now open to all eye care professionals for Cooper Vision's Brilliant Futures Myopia Management Program featuring MySight One Day, the first and only soft contact lenses FDA approved to slow myopia progression in children aged 8 to 12 at the initiation of treatment. Once you complete your certification, you will also have access to resources and support that will help you communicate with parents, grow myopia control in your practice, and make a difference for age-appropriate children with myopia. So act today and change tomorrow. To get started, talk with your CooperVision sales rep or visit coopervision.com for more information. Now, back to our interview. In your opinion, is there an age group that should be more cautious towards 
refractive surgery, how about advising patients that are in their mid 40s to early 60s? That's a good question. So LASIK is FDA approved uh, for patients 18 and older. I am cautious in patients under the age of 21, just because I feel like their corneas are still changing a bit, especially if they are in school and they're studying a lot, things are going to be changing. Um, the younger the patient, the more cautious I am, obviously, you know, I'm very strict on the parameters of their eyes to make sure that, you know, they won't change, they won't um, get any ectasias, things like that. Um, the ideal age is probably going to be about, you know, 24 and up um, until about the mid 40s. Now, patients in the 40s, I still think are very happy with refractive surgery. They start to get into that presbyopic range. So when you tell someone in their 40s who's pretty young and they're still really active and you say, hey, you're going to be looking at a bifocal soon. They're like, oh gosh, I don't want to, I don't want a bifocal, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you'll, you can say, Hey, we can do your refractive surgery, but at some point in the next several years, you are going to need reading glasses. Um, but they're cheap. You can buy them anywhere and you can have multiple pairs of them. You know, you're not buying an expensive pair of bifocals every year. And a lot of them just don't like the idea of a bifocal if they are, you know, seeking refractive surgery information. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in that sense, um, my 40 year old, you know, early to mid 40 year old patients are very happy with refractive surgery because then they just need to, you know, they may not even need the reading glasses yet, but in a few years when they do, they're not that upset about it. Uh, when it comes to patients older than that, who are more in their fifties and sixties, it's a really case by case basis with the 50 year olds. Um, when you do refractive surgery on a patient, it eliminates their candidacy for um, certain multifocal implants during cataract surgery. Mm -hmm. So if I have a 60 year old who's like, I don't wanna wear glasses anymore, what should I do? I, I kind of push them more towards a refractive lens exchange and say, hey, just get your natural lens removed, get a multifocal lens, and then you got everything. You have distance vision, intermediate vision, near vision. If I do LASIK on you, you're not gonna be able to get a, you know, certain multifocal lenses and the better ones that I like are not, you know, you can't do those in patients who've had LASIK. So I, mm -hmm. I almost feel like I'm doing them a disservice if I don't tell them, hey, just wait until you get a cataract or just go ahead and do a refractive lens exchange so you can really get all the benefits now um, or when it's time for cataract surgery instead of limiting yourself um, with mm -hmm. the intraocular lens later down the road. I do find that around a minus three in people that are like 40, 42, telling them that they're going to need reading glasses. Sometimes they just can't comprehend it mm -hmm. when they are, they take off their glasses and they can mm -hmm. see up close. And so I know that discussion takes longer, yes. but it's, it's definitely one that I always have. I'm like, okay, you need to be aware of this. Yeah. Yes. Basically. And I tell, I tell them, I'm like, listen, your eye is like a camera. It comes into focus in one spot. So, you know, you either are nearsighted and you can see up close and you can't see far away, or we can make you see far away, but then at some point you won't be able to see up close because your lens in your eye won't be able to change shape anymore. So um, it is a complicated discussion for some people, but um, it's definitely something to, to tell them like, hey, you don't get to have both. <laughs> you only get to have one. If you're above the age of 40, 45, you get to pick one. Um, yeah. but you get to choose which one you want kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. There have sure. been so many minus ones to minus 1.5s that are in their thirties and they tell me they want LASIK. And to be honest, I never refer those people 
because I, I do tell them, I'm like, listen, you are going to thank yourself when you're 45 to like 55 that you did mm-hmm. not do refractive surgery. Because again, you know, I say you can drive without your glasses, so you don't need them full time and your reading vision's great. So I usually, yeah. I explain to them, yeah, if you get LASIK tomorrow, you will, you will need reading glasses because you're so used to that, that, that I don't, accommodation. I don't necessarily think that's true. I um, think as, if, if they're not hitting presbyopia yet, they won't need yeah. reading glasses. Sorry, yeah, more for, need- um, I meant like their, their accommodative status is also just changing in the sense where, um, you know, when you're, when you're nearsighted, um, you know, if people naturally feel comfortable removing their glasses to read. Mm-hmm. versus now they're an emetrope and they're, you know, still reading at that same distance. They're right. still using their accommodation. They could have accommodative insufficiency, accommodative dysfunction, and then maybe they would feel c- more comfortable with reading glasses. Not, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean they'd enter presbyopia yeah. earlier. With um, contacts, I feel, or with patients like that, if you put them in contacts and mm-hmm. they're happy like that, then I find that they'll be happy with refractive With LASIK, yes. Yeah, yeah. because that's yeah. what it's going to mimic. And I actually mm-hmm. have done LASIK on some people who are minus one and a half, but they're in their 20s and they're in their yeah. early 30s. But yeah. they're like, you know, I'm really active. I like to do this. I like to do that. And I can't mm-hmm. wear my contacts. I can't wear my didn't blah, 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 blah. And in that case, you know, case by case basis, yes. But I wouldn't automatically tell them that they couldn't get it or they wouldn't like it because if they like their vision and contacts, mm-hmm. they're going to like their vision with LASIK. Now, of yeah. course, you're right. Once they hit their mid forties, they're going to need to put on a reader. And if yeah. they're okay with that, yeah. cool. If they're not, then maybe just wait, you'll be fine. If I, if there's a patient who's like in their forties, who's like a minus one, I'm like, just wait. Yeah. I mean, unless you are that motivated to not wear them, if you, you know, again, you have a very active lifestyle, you need to see clearly you're a pilot or, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But for the most part, those patients are still very happy afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wish I was corrected to a minus one. (laughs) How old are you? I had LASIK when I was 21. Oh, okay. Um, I'm 27 now. Oh. And uh, I was a minus seven. So uh, of course I, I love, I love my LASIK results. Like vision is still very good. And it did change. Like you mentioned it, I got my LASIK done the summer before optometry school started. And oh my gosh, I really needed reading glasses <laughs> during optometry school. Um, and my prescription did change quite a bit. Um, it became more hyperopic. Okay. But now I'm actually back to Plano because school has ended. I don't use my laptop anymore. I'm not really reading a lot. Um, so if you are on your computer or like studying a lot, you could have been having accommodative spasm where like putting on readers would just, that. and it's not necessarily (laughs) that you need it. It's just that it feels better to not have to constantly accommodate to look like more for comfort, more for comfort. Exactly. So like I was a minus seven and I got PRK when I was 25 Mm. And I'm 30, almost 34 and mm-hmm. I'm happy as a clam. Like I, yeah, I've yeah my like, vision is great. great. Like yeah, I, I, I love like never want to be minus one, but mm-hmm. I'm just used to being Plano now. So like, I just like yeah. it perfect, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and Amrit, Amrit was the youngest, like out of our friend group. Like I'm 30, Deepon's 32, I believe. 
and then Amara. She's not going to be happy you said than... that on the podcast. I mean, I'll yeah. have to take that out. <laughs> yeah, take that out. Anyway, Amara's the baby. <laughs> so I guess I should say <laughs> we're not all 27. <laughs> not either. It's fine. Yeah, Alice yeah. is like, let me just point out we're all more mature here than Amara. I just want to <laughs> no, say that no. out loud. Um, but Alex says, Alex, like, have you ever, cause you, I'm sure you've considered LASIK. Your dad's an optometrist. You're like minus 12, 10. 10. Uh, I'm minus 10. I didn't really consider LASIK more. So I considered the, um, ICL. ICL. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what uh, made you not get the procedure done? Yeah. I do well with contacts and I always have. So I granted I've been in contacts, I think now almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. So, and I just stabilized. That's another thing is this last year. I just stabilized, uh, oh, prescription wow. wise. Yeah. Cause I was changing all throughout school. I just kept getting higher and higher. So. Yeah. Like Dr. Patel, I actually, I do the same thing that you mentioned too, where, um, a lot of the young 20 year olds, when they want LASIK, I always ask them, are you in school or are you doing any post like graduate school? Like, are you going to do an MBA or a master's? And a lot of them will say yes. And then I'll give them that warning. I always offer the referral to every patient, but then I always give them my two cents. And I say, Hey, listen, like I, you're not going to be happy spending a couple thousand dollars on a surgery and your vision's going to change again when you're in that program. So just keep that in mind. And maybe you want to hold off until um, that program is over or like in your last year where it's probably not as stressful as like your first two, three years. Um, And that's from my own experience too. That's why I tell all of them, them, listen to me, (laughs) don't do what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Moving on to pretty much uh, post-op management you know, what are some potential complications from refractive surgeries and what can we as optometrists even do in our pre and post-op management to prevent most of those complications? So, and I don't think we talked about this quite yet. So I'm going to kind of take a step back and talk Mm -hmm. about this, but um, another group of people that I think you should refer for refractive surgery are your patients that have really bad contact lens hygiene or the ones that even have one scar from an ulcer. Mm-hmm. If I ever treat a corneal ulcer related to contacts in my clinic, which is, I do that all the time. I always talk to them about refractive surgery because I say, you know what, if you already got one infection, you're or you're at higher risk of having another one. Yeah. I've seen giant ulcers in the middle of the visual axis. And by then you're like, oh gosh, you're going to have a huge scar boom, your vision's going to be affected for, for life now. So anytime someone has even the smallest of ulcers or a scar from an ulcer, or they admit they're not very good with their contacts, um, other people that I would um, refer immediately would be people that are very active, especially in water sports or water activities, um, who you know wear their contacts during that. I mean, that's just kind of asking for trouble. Yeah. People that, you know, obviously go swimming in freshwater sources, freshwater lakes, um, even in chlorinated pools, but in hot tubs, anything like that. I feel like those patients are just like a ticking time bomb, especially if you add poor contact lens hygiene on top of that. So Mm -hmm. I always recommend refractive surgery for those patients because I'm like, your risk of refractive surgery is like nothing compared to your risk of 
going blind from a contact lens related um, infection or ulcer or something like that. So those are the people I really try to push towards it Yeah, because I think it's doing them a service by not, you know, having them continue that poor hygiene. Yeah. Um, back to your question though. So preoperative and postoperative kind of things to look for. So preoperatively dry eye is a big one. Again, if you see any dry eye, this does not mean they're not a candidate. It means if they're willing to work on their dry eye, they can be a candidate. So it depends on how motivated they are. So I don't, I know a lot of providers just throw on some Zydra, throw on some Restasis, throw on some, you know, steroid, God knows what. I do not do that. I do not recommend that. I do not want any other chemicals on that corneal surface. I recommend conservative things like a brooder mask or a heated eye mask to loosen up those oil glands. Um, doxycycline, if they have ocular rosacea or if they have signs of even um, rosacea on the, the rest of their face. Uh, lid scrubs, I love lid scrubs. They can do their own at home or they can buy the commercially available ones. I think the commercially available ones are better. I spend a lot of time talking to my females about eye makeup removal. Yeah. So I yes. tell my female patients or any of my patients that wear eye makeup, um, remove it really well with a makeup wipe and remove it until the wipe is clean. So if you're still wiping your eyes and it's black or brown or whatever color your eye makeup is, that means it's still on there. Yeah. Then go ahead and do your you know, brooder mask, loosen more of that gunk up there and then do a lid scrub and you'll probably still get more makeup on there because yeah. that stuff sticks really well. Um, not only is that going to help, you know, get debris and all that makeup out of the tear film, but that's also going to help the overall, um, health of the eyelid. Yeah. Um, the other thing we kind of talked about the corneal scars, um, and the history of all the infections and all that stuff. So that's really the preoperative stuff that I, you know, think you guys could probably find and look for and maybe counsel patients on mm -hmm. um the schooling if they're going to be in class they're going to be looking at a computer looking down looking up looking down looking up um that's one thing as well to talk to them about in terms of post-operatively um most commonly with lasik what you're going to see is debris in the interface of the flap debris bothers the eye doctor but the patient is not going to notice that other things you'll see in the interface is meibomian secretions. That one is very common because when we're doing the procedure, meibomian secretions are everywhere if that patient has untreated meibomitis or blepharitis. So you may see my meibomian secretions under the flap and that is totally fine. That is not going to cause any issues. That's not going to cause any symptoms. It's going to bother you as the eye care provider because you can see it, but it's not going to bother anyone. I wouldn't even tell the patient they have that because then they're just going to be like, what's that? What's that? Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Same with any debris. I mean, I have patients come in and we say, don't wear makeup. Don't wear eye makeup for like a few days before surgery. Sure enough, they have mascara flakes still all over, you know, and we clean it off with betadine, but it's impossible to clean all that off sometimes. So sometimes you'll get debris in the interface. And sometimes that is just inevitable. But if you see it there, as long as it's not causing any inflammation, which it usually doesn't, you just leave it alone, you observe it, it's nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. The other things you'll see are microstriae. That is very common in someone who's had a, um, a high prescription ablation. So if you think about it, when you ablate the cornea, you're removing tissue. And then you're putting this flat back down onto a surface that has less tissue than before. So 
inevitably you're going to have a little bit of microstriae in most patients. Again, that is asymptomatic. The patient will not notice that. You will notice that. It's nothing to worry about. What you need to worry about is the macrostriae. The macrostriae is literally a mechanical, something happened after surgery. They rub their eye, you know, something hit their eye and the flap has literally like moved and there's a big wrinkle in it. A surgeon will never leave macrostriae on the on the surface. That that's not possible. They will never do that. So if you see it, that means that they either rub their eye or something hit their eye, their kid hit their eye, their dog hit the eye, something happened. And they might say, no, I didn't do it, but something happened where something was rubbed and the flap was essentially dislodged. That needs to be sent back to your, the surgeon needs to be refloated and re, uh, and the flap needs to be laid down again. So the macrostriae 100% need to be fixed. Is that an urgent referral? Like, at, because as the epithelium is healing, is that something that needs to be fixed like as soon as I, possible? Yes. I would say refer to the surgeon as soon as you can, at least call them and say what's mm -hmm. going on. And most likely, and this should be what happens, the surgeon will be like, come on in, let's take a look. If it's not me, my colleague will take, someone will look at it and we'll see if we have to you know, fix it right away. Most cases we'll fix it pretty, pretty close after we okay. see it, just for healing purposes. Mm -hmm. um, other things you can see uh, post-operatively, you can see epi defects with LASIK, which we don't like because that'll kind of, you know, increase inflammatory response. You could see it after surgery. They usually have little ones. Um, but if you see a giant one in the center, mm, that's a little bit concerning. Again, very rare to see that, but it's possible. Um, and then of course, an ulcer or some sort of infection that's forming either on top of the flap or in the flap interface. Again, very rare, but if you see it, obviously something to worry about, call the surgeon and have them take a look. Um, and then lastly, you know, inflammatory changes like early DLK. Um, DLK, you know, when you learn about it, you always see your typical sands of Sahara, very advanced DLK. Um, early DLK, sometimes you can't tell if it's DLK or if it's just some inflammation, you just don't know. When in doubt, go up on the steroids and send them back to, your, to the surgeon. Um, and they'll take a look and see if it is or if it isn't, but you can't go wrong with just going up on the steroids at like yeah. every few hours or so. That was really helpful. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Good, good. Um, I have one more question that we haven't talked, we haven't talked about this at all, but I think this is one of the most common things that's spoken about specifically with like LASIK is glare. Okay. How, you know, how common is nighttime glare in your patients? And is it more common in one certain refractive surgery than another you and um, you guys know this so the concept of spherical aberration when your pupil dilates more of the crystalline lens light goes through more of that lens mm -hmm. so on the sides it's going to bend at different angles than it's going to bend when it goes through the middle so every single person at nighttime has a little bit of glare if their pupil dilates which is 99 yeah. of people mm -hmm. so a little bit of nighttime glare is normal. Everybody has it. You add something like myopia in the mix, someone who's driving around with untreated myopia, that's gonna go up even more. So you add myopia, you add spherical aberration, that's a normal concept or normal thing that everybody has. And then you add a LASIK flap to that. And what I've noticed is if my patients have lighter colored irises, um, or they have very large scotopic pupil size, they are more likely to experience glare. 
And that's because when your pupil dilates and say it's outside the range of that LASIK flap, you are gonna have more light hitting the edge of that flap. And some people are going to be more, they're gonna notice that more. They're gonna be more symptomatic from that and that's gonna increase the glare. Mm -hmm. So all those three things combined, yes. When you have LASIK, you, ha you are at a higher chance of having glare. Now, whether or not that's going to bother you also depends on the person. Yeah. So, you know, I have patients who are like, oh yeah, I do notice the glare, but it's fine. It doesn't really bother me. I had glare before, you know, mm -hmm. or some people are like, oh my God, it's awful. I hate it so much. I can't do anything. So it also depends on the person. Mm -hmm. But my general rule is I tell people there's a chance that you're going to have more glare at nighttime. That's something to keep in mind with LASIK, particularly PRK, not so much. Um, but with PRK, you still have the spherical aberration. So mm -hmm. people, when you have something done, people tend to say that whatever symptom they have is because of that. They may have been having that before, you know, but they didn't really notice it. So with PRK, I don't hear that complaint as much. But if you ask them, they'll be like, well, yeah, I have more glare, you know, and I don't necessarily know if that's true or not, yeah. or if that's just something they notice now. Mm -hmm. With LASIK, yes, you are more likely to have more glare. Um, but again, it just depends on the person, on their mm -hmm. iris color, how big their pupil gets. And as you get older, if your pupil starts to get smaller, which it does, that effect should get better. The other thing is people get used to it. People yeah. learn how to adapt that. Um, I notice that even when I drive at night, I don't particularly like it, but I'm mm -hmm. like, well, I can still do it. And that's just been like that my whole life because yeah. those lights, they're uncomfortable. So yeah. Um, yeah, something that I definitely talk to my patients about, most of the time it doesn't deter anyone from having it done, but I tell them that that is something that they need to expect mm -hmm. um, and that it's pretty common. Is there a certain scotopic pupil size in like millimeters that where you'll know that this person may likely experience more glare? Like Not an average pupil size? Yeah, because okay. so the flap diameter, it's in it, and this is a thing that varies with surgeon and laser. Mm. So the flap diameter can range anywhere from 8.1 millimeters to I believe 10 millimeters. I, I don't okay. remember the highest, the highest um number. Mm -hmm. And that depends with that can change with any laser. Okay. So it just depends on the surgeon. It depends on which laser they use. It depends on which size flap they create. If you create a bigger flap, mm -hmm. you are cutting more corneal nerves. So you are at higher risk of getting dry eye, but less at risk for getting things like glare at nighttime. Okay. If you do a smaller flap, less likely to create uh, dry eye symptoms because less corneal nerves are being cut. Mm -hmm more likely to create glare theoretically. Now in practice, is that what happens? Who knows? Because, you know, some people with huge pupils are like, I don't see glare. And then some people with small people, people see glare. So yeah. it tends to correlate with pupil size, but I can't say that there's a specific number um, that I'm like, oh, you're going to have glare. I don't, I don't really kind of do okay. that black and white kind of um, Do you have any advice on how optometrists can best co-manage refractive surgery patients with ophthalmologists? I think the best way to do that is just communication. I mean, if you're going to co-manage with an ophthalmologist, just communicate with them and they should communicate with you and vice versa. If there's ever anything that you are concerned about or you don't know about, I don't know what this is. Can I send them over to you tomorrow? Can you take a look? 
nine times out of 10, they're gonna be like, absolutely, let's take a look, we'll see. And that, that feedback of, oh, that's, it's just this, this is what I see. That's just how we learn. And that's just how we kind of figure out, oh, I guess that's not something to worry about. Or, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I should worry about that when I see it again. So communication is the biggest thing. As long as you're communicating with your um, ophthalmologist that you work with, you should be fine. Um, the, those few things that I talked about, as long as you're pretty versed at looking for, you know, debris and uh, microstriae, macrostriae, any inflammation, you'll be just fine. And again, if there's any concern or question and you don't quite know what you're looking at, just send them over to the surgeon and they'd be, I'm sure they'd be happy to take a look. Yeah. And then just to wrap up our podcast, you know, are there any, um, are there any like resources that you'd recommend if people are really interested in keeping up to date with refractive surgeries that are out there or to learn more? Um, yeah. Are there any resources that you like to share for all of our listeners just so that they can kind of keep up with what's going on in the world? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, I highly recommend just journal articles, like new journal mm-hmm. articles that come out about um, refractive surgery. There's, you know, the American Academy of Ophthalmology is a really good source online. They have so many resources on refractive surgery, um, journal articles. I mean, I try to keep up with them. There's always new ones being published. Um, but the other thing too, is that I, um, I network with a lot of refractive surgeons. And so when there's new things out, we talk about them. Conferences are great, you know, to go sit in on those lectures. And I have to say that now that conferences have started back, that's my main um, source of information is I go to conferences and I try to attend all the refractive surgery lectures because then I can ask questions and it's more of um, an interactive way of doing it than just kind of sitting at home and reading. Um, But that works too. So whatever, you know, whatever you can get your hands on is a good resource as long as it's from a reputable source. Yeah. Thank you. Um, This was great. I love this podcast because you know what our Our patients are always asking about refractive surgery. And I think after we graduated, it is, it is more challenging to keep up with new things that are coming out. It was really nice to hear more about smile and when a patient's, you know, uh, has the option for ICL. Like, Mm -hmm. again, that's still something that like never really comes to my mind as often. So hopefully this really helped a lot of other listeners too. And, um, we'll definitely share your, Instagram handle and your website as well, just so that our listeners can learn more and be entertained at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we definitely were. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so and much. Your dog's Dr. so cute. Patel. Oh, thank you. He he is pretty cute. I'm not gonna yeah. lie. Oh yes, yeah. your dog too. Yes, yes. Um, He's so well, cute. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And please reach out if you have any more questions or if any of the listeners have any questions. Um, you can reach me on Instagram or email me or whatever's easiest. Bye. Bye. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.